So we are in chapter 14, uh, and I have been telling all of you, uh, you know, we've been following the divine outline, chapter 1, verse 19. Uh, we've been doing this now for, I guess, 13 or 14 weeks, and um, uh, we're building uh, right upon uh, our foundation here, and we find ourselves in this little, like, uh, interlude or intermission. It's not really an intermission, but it's uh, this place where we're introduced to a lot of characters. Remember in chapter 12, we were, uh, we're, we're now in the midpoint of the tribulation period, and we're introduced uh, in this interlude or this uh, time to like gather ourselves before uh, the ending and the final story when God helps us develop who the characters are uh, during the tribulation period, that seven-year period when God's pouring out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world, and also uh, continuing, or not continuing, but doing business with the, as I like to say, with the uh, nation of Israel and uh, fulfilling all those promises. So that's chapter 7, or excuse me, that's seven years of that. And at the end of that time, Jesus Christ with his saints who are in heaven, chapters 4 and 5, because of the rapture, are going to come back at the end of seven years and rule and reign on earth for a thousand years. That's called the millennial reign or the millennial kingdom. And at the end of that time, a lot of things are going to happen. We'll see maybe a few uh, tonight, uh, a prelude to that. But then after the millennial kingdom, chapter 20 of Revelation is chapter 21 and 22. Even I can figure that out. And after the millennial reign is the new heavens and the new earth. Somebody asked me the other day, where are we in heaven? (laughs) where's heaven? Well, it depends on when you're talking about. (laughs) Heaven's being with the Lord, right? If you died today, you'd go up and be with the Lord. Maybe, you know, some consider that, call it the third heaven. But where are you going to live for eternity? In the new heavens and the new earth. With a resurrected, glorified body. Isn't that beautiful and wonderful? Okay, so we're in this and we're... um, uh, finding out the characters, the drama, right? In any good drama, we talked about this, uh, you find out the characters, character development. I even put in the WWF uh, in one of the sermons. Can you believe that? Because WWF is mat, they're masters at developing the characters. That's why it gets popular, because you learn the backstories about all these guys. That's why the NHL suffers a little bit. They don't concentrate on the people. So you don't know the stories, but when you know the stories, it becomes personal to you. And we talked about that. So the woman, who's the woman? Chapter 12. Uh, uh, The woman is Israel, and the child is Jesus, and the dragon is Satan, right? And then we talked about uh, uh, Satan being uh, thrown out of heaven, and then the woman being persecuted, uh, just horrifically, Israel being persecuted. And... uh, uh, we uh, encounter in chapter 13, what we did last week, this beast from the sea. Then we decided that was the Antichrist, and we talked about that. And then this beast from the earth, who is the false prophet. In other words, you've just found and discovered there, that the enemy of our souls has an unholy trinity because he's the copycat of all copycats. He tries to copy the Lord to draw people away. So sometimes things look slick and right, and they aren't slick and right. (laughs) Or yes, they are slick, but not right. Listen, so one of my kids has to get surgery tomorrow. So he he goes to Messiah, Kai does, okay? And two years ago, uh, he hurt his knee, and he had to get surgery on November 1st. Uh, of what, 2018. Now it's almost November 1st, 2020. A couple of weeks ago, he's playing football and uh, he comes knee to knee with somebody and it turns out he has a torn meniscus, same meniscus that he tore last time. He had ACL meniscus surgery. So here he is at Messiah and he can't straighten his leg and he's in pain. And so they were obviously in the middle of the state, they're good doctors and there's fine facilities and all that sort of thing. But the doctor that we had the first time, uh, uh, he's associated with the pirates, and he's just uh, a good guy. And uh, uh, we decided that we were going to bring, with Kai's blessing, he's 18 years old, of course, we were going to bring Kai back and uh, 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 do it here and then go online for the rest of the time. And 
one of the factors into that was he was in pain. You know, if he wasn't in pain, we would have waited till Thanksgiving. If he could straighten his knee, waited till Thanksgiving or whatever. And that's not uncommon for knee surgeries to do that. But he was in pain. But here's the other reason. I, I kind of alluded to it a minute ago. You see, uh, we trusted the doctor. We really liked the doctor. Uh, when you go there, uh, right here in the middle of trouble, right? You got this knee and you're in pain. And, you know, you're wondering, can you save the meniscus? Can, can you not save the meniscus? What's going on here? You, you see, we sat down with him earlier this week. And, you know, something that uh, was amazing about that visit is the doctor made us feel reassured. He was going to go through something. He's going to go through something tomorrow that's hurting and painful, uh, but before it happened, the doctor told us everything that he could possibly do or possibly encounter, and he even got down to what sutures he was going to use and why he was going to use the certain sutures to help stabilize that, stabilize that meniscus if he can, in fact, uh, save the meniscus. He told us all about it and why there's different sutures and what they do and the whole shooting match. And uh, One of the things that we said when we left, and then we actually uh, said it this afternoon, man, Dr. Frank made us feel better. You know why Dr. Frank made us feel better? Before the visit, we still were going to go through the surgery, and it was still going to be painful and, you know, uh, uh, you know, rehab and all that sort of thing. And when I say we, I mean he, not me. But, you know, you don't like your kids to go through that. But, um, but here's... What made us feel better? He told us what was going to happen. I mean, he's done this a million times. He, he told us uh, what was going to happen. He, I even looked him up today. He started practicing in 2001. So in, you know, 20 years, 19 years, you know, surgeries on Tuesdays and Thursdays, 10, 11, 12 surgeries a day, you do the math. He's done a lot of these specializes in knees. And he, so he told us, you know, and he talked about it. You know, I don't see any ACL tear there, but if there's an ACL tear, what do you want me to do? He was asking us because he was asking for our consent. We we're like, well, of course, fix it. And he goes, yeah, we'll fix it. But, you know, that's a low probability. That probably won't happen. And then he went through all the different scenarios and, you know, how the pain and the level and the, what, the, uh, what it was going to be. But we felt better. But it's still coming. You get it? You look at this, you look at the, the book of Revelation, and some people, and I've heard people, they've come to me and they said, we're scared, we're scared. Well, see, Titus calls it the blessed hope. This is a blessed hope. Now, I understand. These are serious matters. People's lives are at stake. I, I, I get it. Just read. And yet, what the Lord is doing here is telling us what's going to happen beforehand. And, oh, by the way, he's giving, listen, listen, he's giving everybody every opportunity to miss the tribulation. <laughs> well, what do I mean? Well, you know, back in chapter 7, just turn there. You see, one of the things that the Lord wants to do is concentrate heavenly, heavily, I said heavenly, heavily on the uh, nation of Israel. So he combines it in a sense. Uh, a couple things. One thing he does is he calls out 12,000 people from the 12 tribes of Israel to be these Jewish evangelists who are going to preach, some say and are certain it's in the first part of the tribulation, the first three and a half years, and because of their ministry, many are going to come to Christ in the middle of the tribulation. Oh, and by the way, the Bible tells us that those 144,000 are sealed on their foreheads. And in chapter 14, what we're going to read tonight, we learn what it says. But when it says sealed, it means, it must mean, we're going to learn that in a minute, they're protected. So when we get to chapter 14, look at this. It says that um, uh, there were 144,000. There weren't 139, or excuse me, there weren't 143,999 Jewish evangelists. 
In other words, God sealed them and brought them through the tribulation. Oh, by the way, saints, you're sealed. You have the Holy Spirit in you, and the Bible tells you it's a down, or down payment or a deposit like layaway, <laughs> guaranteeing your entrance into heaven. That's what the Bible says. So listen, if you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has come into your life. You're counting on that, that, that death and resurrection of Christ for your salvation. The Holy Spirit's come into your life. Listen to this, folks. Things might get hard here, but you're going to heaven. You're going. So just like the surgery, yeah, there's, there's pain involved. There's some rehab. You're going through some tough stuff, tribulation. But you know what's at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. And that's what this is about. And here, look at this. Uh, do you remember in chapter 13 and chapter 14, these, this unholy trinity is described and what they're going to do. It actually said that the Antichrist is going to get to the place where he's pointing people to worship the dragon. You catching it, folks? In other words, Satan worship is going to be prevalent in that, in that world. Satan worship, and then he's going to get us to the place through this false prophet who is seen to be somebody who's in the religious world, who's helping this Antichrist set up himself in the temple halfway through this tribulation period. And at this time, they're going to ask people to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. Again, copycat. And that's going to dictate whether or not they could eat. Or buy and sell, or be in the you know economic world. So you're like, well, wait a second. You know, one of the great ways in which to be a writer, the Holy Spirit knows this, I'm sure. You know how to prove your point when you're writing. Compare and contrast. Right? If you want to make a big point, compare and contrast, and and chapter 14, see. It's, it's like, I know my mind works weird, so I'm going to do this for you. You know that little game that kids play where they go like this? You know what I'm talking about? And who can win, and then they, right? Well, you know the story of the Bible. I think of the story of the Bible that way. Man sins and falls. Okay, you put on a prickly outfit. Oh, animal coverings. Um... The place is devolved until it's so bad that Lord has to bring a flood, but ark and salvation. And then you get to the place mid the, right, the kings. Are you kidding me? The kings? We went through these stories. Their lives, their, their, their kingdoms just were out of control, evil. They got to the place, we were talking about it last night, uh, Israel got to the place where they were sacrificing their firstborn on the statute of Molech. They worshipped with like the other surrounding countries. When God had called them out and said, well, I want you to worship one way, and that's here at the temple, not two ways, not 50 ways, one way, because I'm gracious and merciful. I'm going to bring you into my presence, so to speak, through the of, through the great high priest or the priests in the tabernacle or the temple, you see? God said, there's one way. It's just merciful and gracious. And then people said, no, we want more ways. And it spiraled out of control until sacrificing. And, and, and on and on and on we go until Jesus Christ, the final one, right? But here, you have this in the middle of this tribulation period, which is a very difficult period to say the least, comparing and contrast, you get to chapter 14, you get Mark's 
here and Mark's here. And Jesus says, hold on. I want you to read something. Chapter 14, 1 through 5. Here it comes. Then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion. And with him, 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. Compare and contrast. In other words, I told you, right, um, who I am all throughout the Bible. I've told uh, uh, you all throughout the Bible. I've told you that I'd never, Jesus said, I'd never leave you for, nor forsake you. New Testament. Uh, Lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. How about that one? And here he marks and sealed, God does, these 144,000 Jewish evangelists. And John, the revelator, the one who receives these visions, this first vision here, he looks and behold, there's a lamb. Who do you think that is? That's Jesus. And he's standing on Mount Zion. Why Mount Zion? Because Isaiah 24, 23 says, and other places, I think it's 24, 23, check me. I just did that off the top of my head and I'm not sure now. I knew it had to do with Michael Jordan's number. But anyway, I think it's Isaiah 24, 23 that says he's going to rule and reign from Mount Zion. So why do you think the Lord's telling us or showing John this vision? Because you have people who are inside the tribulation. There's 144,000 Jewish evangelists who are inside the tribulation. Do you remember you had two witnesses at the wall? who were sharing the gospel. They died, and right? You remember all of that? So gospel's been going. So there were tribulation saints that came to know the Lord in the tribulation. And now, you know, things are happening. Things are happening during the tribulation period that are really rough, including to this place where you had to take this mark, and the Lord is encouraging us now and will encourage us them then, that the 144,000 made it through because they were sealed. And the Lord is with them standing on Mount Zion. Now listen, there's a million different views about verses 1 through uh, verse 5. When and where are they? (laughs) Many people believe that this is not Mount Zion on earth, the one where the Temple Mount is, where this vision takes place, but it's the Mount Zion in heaven. You know this, right? That there is a heavenly scene that matches the tabernacle in the area. You know that. It's better. It says it in Hebrews. So some people believe this is a vision of the Lamb of God who's in heaven with his saints, and that somehow this 144,000 are with him. Some people believe, who take that view, some people, now listen, that those 144,000 in like a mini second rapture have been called up to be with the Lord. Other people believe that this is actually Mount Zion, and that what this is, is because they're in the interlude It's not Jesus in heaven, it's Jesus when he comes back in chapter 19 to rule and reign with his saints, and John is being allowed to see ahead of time what's coming. And that this 144,000 there are there, in other words, they've made it all the way through. You be a Berean and decide how you would come down on that. Here's the point. These sealed ones make it through. They make it through, and you're going to make it through because you have the seal. You've been filled with the Holy Spirit. You're going to be in the middle of tribulation. It might be now. It might be right now. You're saying to yourself, but this person, that person, this job, this grief, this thing, this what is happening? I'm at odds with somebody. I'm in the middle of tribulation. My work, my job, my, uh, uh, my health, I don't know what it is. I'm in the middle of tribulation. Listen, you're going to make it. You're going to be with the Lamb in heaven, folks. 
you're going to make it. And John heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters. Sound familiar? It should sound familiar because in chapter 1, that's how they described Jesus. So whether this was Jesus' voice or his father's voice, because anyway, whether it's Jesus' voice or God the Father's voice, it's the voice of many waters, and it's like the voice of loud thunder. Yes. What else happened up here? And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. In the King James, it says, harpers, it says, how does it say it? Harpists harping their harps. Isn't that great? (laughs) Harpists harping their harps. So you hear the sound of harpists playing their harps. People in heaven who are playing harps. There's going to be music in heaven, folks. Music does something to us, doesn't it? Remember back in the 70s and the 80s when, uh, and, and 90s even, I think even Tipper Gore was in on the commission about how uh, these, these, uh, uh, this music was impacting kids and they were uh, doing bad things to themselves because they were listening to that real dark music. And I can remember some of the people in the Senate or the congressional hearing saying, come on, music doesn't have any, uh, any impact upon a person to get them to do something. Shoot, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says music is very impactful, and the Lord designed it to worship him. Do you worship just when you play music or sing? No, you worship all the time. But it's one way we can express ourselves, and God gave it to us, and he was the creator of it. So if God's the creator of it, he can regulate it. But here, they play harps. That's what you do in heaven. And they sang as it were a new song before the throne. I think it's in, these are all coming from here. This one's Gail Sayers, Chicago Bears running back. Psalm 40, I think it's verse 3, but it's Psalm 40. David said, I'll put a new song, the Lord's put a new song in my heart to be able to praise him. Of course, they sang as it were a new song before the throne. There's a lot of people who argue about who it is that's singing right here, but it seems just plain to me that any group in heaven, each group in heaven are going to have certain songs that they'll be able to sing and they'll alone. In fact, you know what, uh, Jared over there and me, I'm going to be able to sing a song to my Lord, but Jared's going to be able to sing a song too, but it might be different song because the Lord's working out his salvation with, you know, Jared's working out his salvation with fear and trembling with the Lord, but so am I, and so are you. We're going to sing same basic pattern of song, but we're going to sing our own unique song. So what I think's happening here, personally, is, you remember the, the church in Revelation chapter 5? They were singing. They have a song to sing, and they, they can play music. So they're doing something, but also these tribulation saints... Come on, folks, if you're not one of the 144,000, you will be able to sing a new song, but you can't sing their song. They're going to sing their song. It's going to mean something to them. And these 144, why am I going through that? Because it says they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. Nobody could sing that song. Nobody can sing your song, in a sense. We all sing the same song, in a sense. We're redeemed by the blood. We live because of the resurrection. But you know what? We're all in different places, in different spots in life, and he brings us up out of different things. It's all the same in one sense. We're sinners, but there are different scenarios and circumstances. Some people worship with ties and three-piece suits. We worship with jeans and a, you know, a shirt, you know, a button-down or something on. But, but it doesn't, okay, we have a different expression of worship, but we're all the same. We're worshiping the Lord, Right? Yes. Uh, Man, isn't it great that he puts a new song in your heart, in my heart? In Ephesians 10, he says, you're his poem. He's not writing Catherine's story the exact same as my story. Yes, it's all based on the blood of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, but he's doing something 
you know, he's doing things in different ways for Catherine and different ways for me, but it's not better. It's just different. We sing a new song. Yes, the same song in one sense, but different. It's just so beautiful. And so here, as I see it, yes, these 144,000 are going to sing a new song that no one else could sing. We didn't go through what they went through. Well, Theologians make a big deal about that, (laughs) and I'll just leave you to study that. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones, isn't this interesting? These are the ones who were not defiled with women, not that women are bad. This is just saying, for they are virgins. These these guys, uh, they kept themselves pure. They, they just devoted themselves unto the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is there anything wrong with being married? No. Don't take this verse as some traditions do and say, see, holy people shouldn't be married. That's not what this is saying. Paul does say, hey, if you happen to be single, Just rejoice in that. Rejoice in that. Why? Because you can be fully dedicated unto the Lord. But if the Lord brings somebody, then of course, yes, that's beautiful too. But the point is, singles aren't second-class citizens. And sometimes the church treats them as such. But here, there are ones who aren't defiled with women, for they're virgins. They kept themselves pure. They devoted themselves uh, unto what was happening here during the tribulation. And probably it was a very smart thing. Although they were sealed and protected, right? All the arrows that are flying by. Whoa. And these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And these were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. What's a firstfruit? Come on, man. What's a first fruit? Oh, a first fruit. You give your first and your best. You give your first and your best unto the Lord. Uh, we, we know this, right? The Old Testament, they gave their first and their best. They did, sometimes they even had percentages fixed to it, but whatever. They gave their first and their best. Crops, uh, uh, you know, the sacrifices, etc. right? We're to give our first and our best. That's why, you know, uh, think about Sunday as being the first day of the week, not the last day of the week. My whole life growing up, I honestly thought Sunday was the last day of the week. It just felt like that, right? Because Saturday, man, was just for having fun and joking around. And then just, you know, for me, even if I went to church, it was just my day to do nothing. See, let's not us think about that. It's the first day of the week. Let's pray ourselves up. Let's come here and exhort one another. But most importantly, let's give our best to the Lord on the first day of the week. Even our, 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 our attention, our time. Our praise. Yes, money too. The Bible says give your first fruits. I think it means money because I got news for you folks. Your money ain't your money. My money's not my money. It's the Lord's. So let's just give back to him. Out of the firsts, not out of the last. In other words, don't treat Sunday, don't treat your life like God gets the leftovers. Give him the first things. Right? Like even in the morning. I mean, my temptation, man, is because these guys know. I, I could watch Sports Center 24-7. I mean, seriously, I tell you this. I could watch the replay of Sports Center over, and she'll say, well, you've seen those. And I'm like, yeah, but I didn't really see it, man. I want to see what the person did there or whatever. So I could do that, but what about the Lord? Are we just, oh, just sitting there and receiving from the Lord? even our morning. So the first fruits, but here's, it means something else. Listen, it means that more are coming. Jesus is the ultimate first fruit in the sense that he went to heaven, but he's bringing all of us. And so what this means is they were great evangelists, I think. They were first fruits in that they gave their best and their all to the Lord, but more were coming. In other words, the Lord blessed their ministry. Isn't that cool? And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Boy, is that convicting. Folks, just time out, and I'm going to have to hustle here, because I'm only through verse 5, but 
this is like this is like the interlude. I think this is the interlude here, and the Lord's just kind of showing you that, hey, remember in 13 when all those people were having to take the mark and it was really dark and foreboding and it looked like the, listen, I want to contrast this here real quickly so you'll be encouraged. And the encouragement is that in the middle of tribulation, these people decided, uh, as the Lord chose them, (laughs) I realize, to live fully ablaze for the Lord. So, so listen, the, the tendency in tribulation, even now, Jesus said there will be tribulation, the tendency in tribulation is just to let everything go. Just, oh, such bad stuff is happening to me. How could I possibly have a morning devotion or whatever I'm making? How could I? And, and our tendency is just to let everything go haywire. Look at this, watch. In the middle of the worst tribulation, tribulation we'll never experience, in the middle of worse, uh, the worst tribulation, these ones who are picked remain pure. In all things, sexually, which we're called to do in the church, but also in every other way, integrity, they remained pure. By the way, parents, this can happen. Don't believe the lie. Go tell others. This can happen. Keep yourself pure in the middle of tribulation. They're not defiled. They've decided uh, uh, that out of their mouth would come no deceit. Think about that. And I'm the worst. I'm first to tell you. No guile, no sarcasm, no not saying what you mean. My love language is sarcasm. So when somebody's sarcastic to me, I'm like, wow, that person likes me. So I know I'm the worst offender here. But here, what does the Bible say? Don't let anything come out of your mouth that doesn't edify people. I need help here. I need the Lord's grace, but these people decided that. Can you imagine in the middle of the tribulation, can you imagine having a mouth like that? I know what my mouth would be doing. Oh, woe is me. I can't even believe the Lord's forgotten me. That's what would be my tendency without the Lord in my life. Think about it now. If you're in a tribulation, be careful. Don't let any root of bitterness get in there because it's insidious and dangerous. And the root of bitterness is when there's deceit in our mouth, when there's, uh, because what it leads to is, you know, this talk that's not substantive or eternal. There you go. We need substantive talk and eternal talk, not eroding talk. This is what these guys did in the middle of the tribulation. And they were first fruits. They shared the gospel. I'm convinced that's what it means some. They shared the gospel. They are coming. They're sealed, but they want more to be sealed. They pointed people to Jesus. How do I know? Because I did this kind of in a circular fashion. Everywhere the lamb went, they went. Okay, so now I'm just going to go off on my soapbox. My sixth soapbox of the night. (laughs) You want to help your kids, your grandkids, young people, be a person of integrity who doesn't defile themselves, keeps pure. And I mean sexually, of course, but I mean in other ways too. Be a person where Love and substantive things comes out of your mouth. Be a person who's willing to be used for the Lord as a first fruit, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. But most importantly, you follow the Lord wherever he goes. Listen, folks, basketball will be there. (laughs) I got news for people here. How do I say this? Your kid ain't going to the NBA. I don't think that's awe. I think that's reality. But here's the thing. At the, end of, at the end of their athletic career or their drama career or whatever their career is in those sorts of things, it's going to be them and the Lord. So, so listen, why it's not bad to put people in sports. Tim Tebow did it. He does it, he does it like a master, man. Most people aren't going to the NFL. Most people aren't going to do all of these unbelievable things. Here's what you better do. Get to the place where your children are following around the lamb. 
And the way they'll follow the lamb is if you follow the lamb. You get it? And in the middle of tribulation, you're going to have whole, healthy, stable people. It doesn't mean they won't go through tribulation. It just means when they do, they'll trust him like you trusted him. All right, look at this. Then I saw another angel in verse 6 flying in the midst of heaven. Here comes, listen to this. The rest of this chapter is like this final call. Like the Lord saying, it's getting bad. I know it. It seems bleak. It seems at the end, but I'm giving everybody, I've already given everybody a chance. I'm going to give everybody a chance, and there's never going to be any question about it. I mean, you've had 144,000, you've had people at the, the witnesses at the wall, and now look what happens. In the midst of heaven, in the midst of heaven, there's this flying angel, and he uh, has this, this is the second vision of, of this chapter, he has this everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth. There's this big debate in theological circles about what the gospel is. I just, I kind of, no, I'd better not say that, but I do care. I do care what the gospel is. I know what the gospel is. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the gospel is his whole program. From the time that Adam fell until the time that he comes back and rules and reigns in the new heavens, people argue, well, why did they only say fear God and give glory to him for the hour of judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water? That's not the gospel. Well, yes, it is. It's part of the gospel. Jesus Christ is coming back in judgment, and that's part of the gospel. And it's everlasting in this sense. It's never going to change. It's always going to be, and there's always going to be a place under the shadow of his wings, tucked in beside him, with him, with a glorified resurrected body, ruling and reigning and deriving your satisfaction and resource from the fact that you're a child of the king and you're living with him. You're with him. Well, anyway, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Do you know what's coming, folks? Turn with me to chapter 16. Just real quick. Chapter 16, turn with me. Here it is. Verse 2, the first bowl soars. Second bowl, sea turns to blood. Third bowl, waters turn to blood. Fourth bowl, men are scorched. Ooh. Fifth bowl, darkness and pain. Sixth bowl, the Euphrates dries up. Seventh bowl, the earth utterly shaken. And then in chapters 17 and chapter 18, the Lord's going to deal with that scarlet woman the, uh, and the scarlet beast. He's going to de deal with false religious system and the false political system. And then he's going to, in chapter 18, deal with Babylon. And we'll talk about who Babylon is. In other words... He's announcing right here, this angel, folks, fear God, not the one who's making you get a mark on your hand or your forehead. Fear God. Fear God and give glory to him. Don't give glory to anything or anybody else. Give glory to him alone. The Bible tells us he doesn't share his glory. So he says, fear God and give glory, for the hour of his judgment has come. Here come the bulls, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Well, here comes another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen. Babylon is fallen. I mean, Babylon, you, you remember this, right? Babylon has a long history in the Bible. You, you know this, right? Uh, the story of Babylon begins at the waters in the Garden of Eden, the rivers that flowed out of the garden, including the Tigris and the Euphrates, that's in Genesis 2. Uh, this is an area, do you remember this? Do you remember this? This is an area, <laughs> in later years, I love this name, where Nimrod first settled his kingdom Babel. That's in chapter 10 of Genesis. If you're in the Bible college, you got this nailed down, man, because Mike Reynolds did such a great job about that. Babel is an early name for Babylon, and the Hebrew word, word, root word, Balal, means confusion. That's Babylon. 
That's where the great tower of Babel, the gate of God, was constructed to reach into heaven, 11, uh, 4 of, of, of Genesis. And that's where God scattered humanity over the face of the whole earth, right there from Babylon. You know it if you've lived through uh, recent history as the place where Saddam Hussein ruled, right? Up in that region. You remember that? Well, listen to this. What does Babylon refer to here? Well, it can refer to a physical city, as I just mentioned. Remember when Saddam Hussein died, you remember he was rebuilding Babylon and he wanted to be the king there. Uh, It can uh, sometimes refer to a political system. It sometimes can refer to a religious system. But one thing you know, it's worldly. It represents the world and the things of the world. And Babylon and Jerusalem are always set against each other. You know that? In the Bible. Okay, and this angel fallen said, Babylon is fallen. So what's fallen? Well, we're going to talk about, by the way, that's straight from Isaiah 21, verse 9. I didn't remember that. I actually wrote it in here. I'm having a tough time coming up with that jersey number. But anyway, Babylon has fallen. You're going to run into that in chapter 17, chapter 18, etc. But know this, it's that false or world system. Could be a city, could be a religious system, could be a political economic system, right? We'll get into that. Why? Because she had made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. She was into some devious stuff, man. The world system, and we know that from the New Testament. We are not to connect with the world. We're not to draw from the world. We're to be separated from the world. Folks, the church and the people of the church should look different than the world. You, you, your life should be way different than non-believers, and mine too. Well, a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, uh, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, look, he's, look how merciful this is. He's warning them. He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength in the cup of his indignation. Wow. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the land, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast. Anyone who chooses to reject God and choose the mark of the beast is going to be in eternal separation from God. Now, one thing before I have them put something up on the screen, they're mad at me because it's really long. They're not mad. I'm kidding. But it's this. I want you to know that this is not going to be something like, hey, we're just slipping this in on you. Mark here or mark here, okay? This is going to be an informed decision by people. They're going to know what's happening, that this one has set himself up in the temple, and he's asking us now to take a mark And God is sending, look, angels in the midst and saying, don't do it. Worship me. It's going to be an informed decision. You talk about fair. Well, listen, what what one doctrine's under attack? Well, here's a doctrine that's under attack, and that's hell. Go ahead and put that up. I'm going to read you something. Dr. R.A. Torrey, who became the pastor at Moody Bible Church in Chicago, read, uh, wrote this about the attack on the doctrines of hell and eternal damnation or eternal punishment. Two things are certain. First, the more closely men walk with God and the more devoted they become to his service, the more likely they are to believe this doctrine. What doctrine? Eternal punishment. Uh, many men, I miss. Typed. I had to type this, but that was really an adventure. But anyway, many men tell us they love their fellow men too much to believe this doctrine. You ever heard this? I've heard this in the circles of Christianity. Many men tell us they love their fellow men too much to believe the doctrine. But the men who show their love in more practical ways than sentimental protestations or protestations about it, the men who show their love for their fellow men as Jesus Christ showed his by laying down their lives for them, they believe it even as Jesus Christ himself believed it. Second, 
Men who accept a loose doctrine regarding the ultimate penalty of sin, restorationism, universalism, annihilationism, they lose their power for God. They may be very clever at proselytizing, but they're very poor at soul-saving. They're seldom found beseeching men to be reconciled to God. They're more likely to be found trying to upset the faith of those who have already been won by the efforts of others than winning men who have no faith at all. If you really believe the doctrine of the endless, conscious torment of the impenitent, and the doctrine really gets a hold of you, you will work as you never worked before for the salvation of the lost. If you in any wise abate the doctrine, that means uh, cut it short, bring it back, eliminate it, it will abate your zeal. Finally, do not believe this doctrine in a cold, intellectual, merely argumentative way. If you do and try to teach it, you'll repel men from it. But meditate upon it in its practical, personal bearings until your heart is burdened by the awful peril of the wicked and you, <laughs> you rush out to spend the last dollar, if need be, and the last ounce of strength you have in saving those imperiled men from certain awful hell of conscious agony and shame to which they are fast hurrying. Whew. People are going to hell, folks. And it's not just happening in the tribulation period. It's appointed once to die and then the judgment. People who die now without Jesus are going to eternal separation from the Lord. Look at this. Then those from, verse 9, from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was getting caught over in chapter 11. Sorry about that. I was like, what? I've already read this before. Tormented with fire and brimstone. And now verse 11, and the smoke of their torment ascends. You see that. And they have no rest day or night. You understand that? That rest is a big issue in the New Testament or the whole Bible. Sabbath. Jesus said, come unto me and I will give you rest. It's a big deal. They're not going to have any rest, and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here, though, is the patience of the saints for those who receive, refuse the mark. Here is the patience. Here is the rest. Here are the, what's going to happen to those people who refuse the mark and decide, I'd rather die than deny Jesus Christ. They are going to be the patience of the saints. They're going to keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, write uh, this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. <laughs> Jesus even took the sting out of death, folks. There's nothing that humans can do to you that can scare you. He took the sting out of death. What could happen? You die today, you go to be with the Lord. You be with the Lord. You talk about rest. You talk about rest. 13. Uh, excuse me, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about it. in 13.15 we see this. In 24, those who die in the Lord from now on are going to be restful, and they're okay because they're with the Lord. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. Do you know this? If you don't know this, just, just memorize this. Just, just memorize this. Jesus not just gives you peace. Listen, Jesus is your peace. That's what Ephesians 2.14 says, that Jesus is your peace. Don't, don't look for peace in circumstances. My bills aren't paid. I'm not peaceful. My bills are paid. I feel great. Yes, I understand we get under stress. But the fact remains that he is good and working on your behalf, whether or not that bill is paid or not. If you have a debilitating disease, if you have something that's going to cause you to leave from this life, you're going to go into his presence immediately. There's nothing 
that anybody can do. You have the peace of God because Jesus is your peace. Circumstances can't hurt you. He's like telling them in contrast, don't worry. You'll have an eternity with me. Then I looked and behold a white cloud. Now the cloud represents the glory of God, right? You know that. Pillar of fire at night, cloud by the right, and they didn't move unless, and then the glory of the Lord looking like a cloud would come in and fill the temples, you know this, but the sad part is in the tabernacle, remember the glory departed, but so anyway, the cloud means the glory of the Lord, so here, behold, a white cloud, and on that cloud sat one like the Son of Man. By the way, that's a messianic reference uh, in Daniel 7. Son of man, messianic reference, coming on the clouds. So here you go, son of man, having on his head a golden crown. And oh, by the way, Jesus has lots of crowns. We're going to read that later. And in his hand, a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. In other words, directly from God, out of the temple, here's the message. Go ahead. It's time. Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And this is fascinating. Quickly. That word ripe there doesn't mean like ripe where, you know, you look and you go, wow, that thing's ripe and you, and you enjoy it. That word for ripe is the one that you've saved too long and it's now withered and dried and it's no good. You go, man, that's ripe. Or have you ever said this with a house full of boys? Man, somebody smells ripe. And girls too, by the way. But anyway, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But this one's ripe. In other words, the, the earth is overdue. It's rotten. It's ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in the sickle in the earth, and the earth was reaped. He, listen, he came as the lamb the spotless lamb, but he's coming back as a conquering king with a sickle in his hand, and he's going to reap a harvest, and he's not, in this picture, the suffering servant. He is the suffering servant, but he's also the conquering king. So then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. He also had a sharp sickle, and another angel came out from the altar who had power over the fire, over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth, and he threw it into the great wine press. Just do me a favor and flip over to chapter 19, verse 15. It says this, when Christ comes back on a white horse with his saints, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. This is Jesus, folks. And now, as he's reaping the harvest, he's also now going to pour out judgment, alluding to the great winepress of the wrath of God. We see it in Revelation 19, 15, and the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles, up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlong. Now, every one of your Bibles are going to say something different about what a furlong is. But one furlong is about an eighth of a mile, and so this is about 200 miles. So listen again. Outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. And it just seems, doesn't it, as we are reading in chapter 19, 11 through 19. I read you a portion of that. I just had you read verse 15. But chapter 19, 11 through 19, is discussing 
Jesus and his armies at the Battle of Armageddon. At the Battle of Armageddon. And now, listen. Where's Megiddo, Armageddon? Megiddo, Armageddon's north Israel, or going towards the north, going more north than Jerusalem. And so many people believe that's where the battle is going to take place. But if you search the scriptures, this is fascinating. It says in Isaiah 63.1 that there's going to be a battle upon the Lord's return in a place called Basra. That's down near the Dead Sea over on the Jordan side. That's Basra. But then if you uh, read in uh, some, some other places, I believe it's Joel 3, 12 through 14, and Zechariah 14, 4, it says that the, the battle's going to continue or be in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. You know where that is? It's called the Kidron Valley. And it literally is right outside the city wall or the Temple Mount. You can look right down in it. It's not very far. Oh, wait a minute. By the way, the battle does is discussed as being in the Valley of Megiddo in Revelation 16 and Revelation 19. So it's popular to say that the battle takes place in Megiddo, but could it be Basra to Megiddo is approximately 200 miles? Could it be that the campaign is so big and that the armies are so large that are come up against the nation of Israel right up unto the place that this is a full campaign against Israel, but when Jesus comes back and speaks those words, they're all wiped out. They're all wiped out. So the message becomes, doesn't it become this? The message becomes, for, for I know most of you here, and I know your stories, and the message for you is that you've surrendered your life, and you're counting on the blood of Jesus Christ, which means you won't be in this period. But you and I, we're worried about other people, aren't we? We just read this uh, uh, long uh, article or long paragraph from R.A. Torrey, and when people deny the doctrine of hell, we're worried about other people. We don't want them to be caught up in a river of blood. We'd rather they count on the blood now. So what is God calling us to? <laughs> See, I think what he's calling us to is right in the beginning of the chapter. No matter what happens, folks, you may or may like not like what happens next Tuesday. <laughs> but what happens at 8 a.m. on Wednesday is the Lord's position still hasn't changed. He's sovereign. He's in control. He knows what's happening. He's not up there wringing his hands about who's going to be the leader of the free world because he's the leader. Do we get involved in the political process and do our best? Of course. But you better stop hating other people on the other side. It's a command. What do we do, though, in the middle of tribulation? If the things, uh, these policies don't go into effect, or I have to pay more taxes, or I don't, can't meet a bill, or the doctor gives me bad news, or my boss fires me, or my whole family has rebelled against me, or whatever, what am I to do? I'm to remain pure. I'm to be a person who's a first fruit person. I'm to be one that speaks life and encourages people. And most importantly, you'll never do it if you don't do this last thing first. Be wherever the lamb is. Just tuck yourself up under the lamb. Just walk with him and talk with him 
and discuss with him and get into his word and see how tender and beautiful and majestic he is and remember that he's got it all figured out. So that when you go through some pain, like in a surgery, you're assured of the ending. So let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you for this word, and thank you for uh, these, uh, beautiful, this beautiful chapter and these uh, words that you give to us in Revelation. We thank you that you've warned us and told us. You've said to us that we are to be uh, ones who are to persevere and to have patience and to stick with you. The patience of the saints. Lord, help us to have patience. <laughs> help us to be ones who stick with you no matter what. We need your grace and resource to do that, not our self-will. We need you because our self-will, we know, only gets us so far, and really it's nothing at all. <laughs> Lord, we'll try, but we need you to come through. And as I prayed earlier, Lord, would you help us to stay in that place where we know we're needy, but we're abiding? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.